Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. This is Amy Poehler. My new movie, Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2, is coming to theaters June 14th. And it's making me feel joy and sadness and anger. Definitely some disgust. Rose. And I think a little fear. But I'm also feeling these new emotions like anxiety, embarrassment, envy, and ennui. It's what you call the boredom. Okay, that one was weird. It's going to be the feel-everything movie of the summer. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. Rated PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only in theaters June 14. Get tickets now. Hey, folks. The Other People podcast is entirely free. Nearly 500 episodes and counting all of them available to you free of charge. There is an app. The Other People with Brad Listy app. That, too, is free. Everything is free. What I'm trying to get at is that this is a listener-supported program. If you're a regular listener, you like the show, you get something out of it, throw a couple of bucks in the hat. You can do that at patreon.com slash otherpplpod. That's patreon.com slash otherpplpod. You can also make a donation via PayPal. There's a PayPal link in the sidebar at the show's official website, otherppl.com. Thank you for your support. Let's get started with the show. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Big, they did what a struggle, you know? It was incredible, you know, it was like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listy. Just one person. Hey everybody, how's it going? I'm Brad Listy. This is the Other People Podcast. Thank you for tuning in. I'm here in Los Angeles and I have Jarrett Kobeck back on the program you may remember him from uh, a while back. I don't know how long ago it was. Maybe a year, a little over a year. He was celebrating the publication of his uh, novel, I Hate the Internet, which became a kind of cult sensation. He now has a new novel out called The Future Won't Be Long. It's due out on August 15th from Viking, August 15th, 2017. The Future Won't Be Long, Jarrett Kobeck. He and I are going to be in conversation momentarily. Uh, it's going to be... A short monologue today. I, I, everything's chaotic. My wife has to go out of town. I've got both kids. My mom is here. Uh, we're juggling childcare, trying to interview people, do a podcast. Got work shit. Got politics on my mind, as always. It's just busy life. I have, uh, as, as some of you may know, I've been looking at puppies online as a kind of therapy regularly. Uh, like to a degree that is uh, potentially embarrassing. 
or would trouble you if you could actually witness it. But I'm uh, fixated on a puppy. In the aftermath of the loss of uh, our dog, Walter, I don't want to be insensitive. He passed away, you know, this spring, tragically, after choking on a bagel. And, uh, you know, it's only been a couple of months, two, three months, but I've always had a dog. So it's like, I feel the house, there's something missing. And, uh, I'm like obsessed with, uh, sheep dogs, <laughs> which are like the, maybe the most high maintenance dogs you could possibly have. And I've got two kids, including a child with special needs, got a full-time job. I could fit a sheep dog in, right? I'm working on Saturdays to do the podcast. It, it, I just need a sheep dog. Just need a high octane cattle dog. Dog that wants to herd, dog that needs to run about 30 miles a day. I can manage that. That'll be good. That'll make things better. So I'm uh, like looking for just the right dog. I filled out an application this week. <laughs> filled out an application for a sheepdog. You have to apply. Some of these people, they're very particular. Before you adopt a dog. They want to make sure you're not psycho, that you know what you're getting into. That's what they really want to make sure. They want to make sure you know what you're getting into so you don't dump the dog back at the shelter. But I've had one of these dogs before. Hey folks, if you are a writer, if you're somebody who's struggling to write, if you're trying to write a book but failing, if you're failing to write a book but wishing you could... If you've written a book, but you're not sure if it's any good and you need to make it better, all of the above, you know what I'm talking about? I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. This is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond. Steve has been a guest many times on this show. I actually spoke with him on this very podcast about this very book not too long ago. You should listen to it. Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow is based on three decades of Steve's Career, writing, failing, and trying again. Richard Russo calls it one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. This is a book that debunks the well-meaning but misguided myths that can hold us back from writing our deepest and most truthful work. It employs the same radical empathy that Steve displayed as co-host with Cheryl Strayed on the Dear Sugars podcast, and it will help you generate new work. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond. Available from Zando. Anyway, uh, Jarrett Kobeck is my guest. Always fun to talk with him. And uh, very happy for him to see the success that he has had over the past uh, year and change with regard to I Hate the Internet and now uh, his very ambitious new novel, The Future Won't Be Long, out from Viking, August 15th, 2017. Here he is, ladies and gentlemen. This is Jarrett Kobeck. So a lot has changed for you. Yeah. Like, yeah. since when did we talk last? 
I believe, uh, late January or early February of oh. 2016. Okay. Yeah. So yeah. it's a little bit over a year, year and yeah, a half. About a year and a half. Yeah. And your book, uh, when we spoke was just starting, I hate the internet was just starting to kind of get out there. Yeah. I think we spoke the week of its release. Okay. Something like that. And then, you know, and this is a book. Did you publish this book? Yeah, I, it, um, I couldn't get anyone to publish it. So I had to found the press that it's on. Uh, we heard you like books and essentially self-published it. I mean, I didn't pay for anything because I had backers to put some money, but not a significant amount of money in it. To do a print run? To do a print run and to pay for the publicist. Okay. So you did a print run and you did a publicist. And how many uh, books were in the print run? The initial print run was, I think, 2,500. And did you have a distributor? Yeah. We, uh, we Heard You Like Books is distributed by SCB, who are just out of Gardena. Um, so like 20 miles from here. Okay. And S can SCB get your book in the bookstore? Yeah. They're a full, they're a, they're an independent distributor, but they're a full thing. Okay. And the reason I ask for these details is because I think there are people out there who would be very curious as to how you did this, because I think that there is a common perception that novels or books that are self-published never find an audience. Right. Um, that there's something, uh, somehow lesser about that approach right. than there is to go through traditional publishing channels, sure. but you managed to do it to get like New York times reviews right. to, uh, be written up in major papers. Right. You, you know what I'm saying? Like, yeah. how, how did you do it? Like what kind of, what did your publicist do? Well, the publicist, and this is advice for everyone, uh, is a woman named Leah Paulos who runs this thing called press shop out of Brooklyn. Everyone who has a book coming out should hire her. Okay. She is brilliant. She is absolutely brilliant. And I would say about 50% of the success of the book is because of her. And she was a recommendation yeah, from, I was going to say, how did you get, how did you get to know her? So, um, I'm friends with the Danish writer who you've had on this show, uh, Dorta Norris. Right. And I met her right before she became this crazy international sensation and um gray wolf was publishing publishing her first book in english in english and you know i was sort of around when that was happening i went to new york and hung out with her because both because she's a really good friend and also because i was like i should learn from this i should see what this is and what became very clear very quickly is that Grey Wolf had a publicist who was amazing. Um, I think her name is Erin Kotke. Yeah, I know Erin. Oh, I yeah. mean, I email know her. Yeah, and she just did this astonishing job on Dorta's book. And, I, and so then when it became clear that I had to do We Heard You Like Books and I had to publish this stupid thing myself, it was like, well, I have to get a publicist. So I asked Dorta to ask Erin for a recommendation, and she recommended Leah. And it was the best recommendation that anyone has ever given me for anything. Okay. So what does, when you say that, uh, Aaron Kotke at gray wolf did a great job and that Leah Paulos yeah. did an outstanding job for you on, um, I hate the internet. Right. Um, what does that look like? What does an outstanding job as a publicist for an author mean? So the thing that no one likes to talk about, but which is the, the truth is that publishing is pay to play. Um, you cannot get barring some freak 
accident, like Fifty Shades of Grey or some other book that just develops its accidental ground support, no one's going to pay attention to your book if you just self-publish. Or even if it's on a major press and you don't have support from the people at the press, if an editor has left or if there's some loss of enthusiasm, maybe because of your behavior in the publishing process. <laughs> um, you know, it is very, very difficult to get anyone to pay attention. So what a publicist does is harass people for you. And it's like a professional harassment. Um, and I mean, they don't actually, they're not jerks about it. That would be a bad publicist. Right. A good publicist, I think, is um, sweet and knows how to suggest these things to people. So with the New York Times thing, that was, as far as I can tell, really Leah, she had somehow gotten the book to Grail Marcus, who, and this is, this is all me assuming this is what happened, but I think it really is. Um, she had gotten the book to Grail Marcus, who liked it and who ran it in his real life top 10. Now, the person who reviewed the book for the New York Times is Dwight Garner, who's right. a really bright guy and who is really interested in Grail Marcus. And I think that's how it got on his radar. I see. And so then he asked for a review copy. And of course, Leo was able to get everything that they needed. So um, do, does she have relationships with Grail Marcus and with Dwight Garner? Does she know uh, these people personally? I don't, I don't, I don't know. Um, I, and I don't want to speak for her when I don't know. Um, somehow she got the book to Grail Marcus right? and he read it and, and he liked it. And then that is really sort of what set everything into motion because prior to that she had done a really good job too. And it, but it had been, you know, it had been the kind of attention that a well-published independent book would get once Grail Marcus reviewed it, then it went into something quite different and sort of began this process of dismantling my life and also rebuilding it and dismantling what my career expectations had been versus what they sort of have become. Um, and so, I mean, mostly I think publicists just reach out and, and, and make people aware that the book is there. And I mean, we live in a world where everything is horrible in terms of the endless amount of new content coming at people. It's too much. It's too much. It's too much for people to keep up with, and particularly the people who are doing reviews or who are in those positions because they're getting a hundred emails a day. So, you know, a good publicist, I think is a necessity able to cut through the noise. Yeah. And you know, it's interesting because you approach this like a business person. Um, you know, you got backers. It's like, it's like a, it's like a, it's like a startup almost. It's, it's horrifyingly close. Yeah. It's yeah. horrifyingly close to a startup, uh, especially for a book called, uh, I hate the internet. <laughs> well, I, I don't, uh, I felt like if I had, I mean, it was humiliating, right. To have to self publish a book was humiliating. Um, that I couldn't get anyone interested in the book. Why not? Why? Yeah. I, I, I mean, now we're getting into supposition, but I think, I think the book embarrassed people. 
I think the book really embarrassed people because there's something about me and particularly that book, which I'm humiliated to be sitting across from you. Right now. <laughs> well, <laughs> I'll have that effect. Um, no, I, I think the book, um, because it was so resolutely anti-literary and because it was so interested in being stupid and, and parts of the book are moronic. I mean, to an effect, but you know, it's full of dick jokes, right? Um, you know, I don't, and I think also maybe because of the internet that when you're dealing with people in publishing, they're still all really freaked out by the internet and it's still not a, f uh, it's still not a successful marriage, right? Like the marriage has happened. It's not going that well. <laughs> um, there's, there's tension. So people were really embarrassed by the book or they didn't understand it or they just thought it was stupid. And so, you know, I then I had a moment where I just, cause I had had the feeling almost from the minute I wrote the first page, I had the feeling that if it went out into the world, it would do fine. Okay. I was going to say, cause you must have to go through, um, the process of submission, right. rejection, yes. deciding to self publish. Yeah. You have a lot of confidence in your work. Uh, I had a lot of confidence in that book. Okay. Um, I mean, I have confidence in my work, but that one in particular, it just seemed to me like, how is this not a no brainer? right? Everyone hates the internet. I was going to say like, this is like, to me, it's a brilliant book. Um, j just beginning with the title. Yeah. I mean, you could cut you, like I've said many times, you could have printed a blank book. Right. I think and, we talked about that yeah, last time. And you would, you would sell not as many copies as it's ended up selling. You could sell a couple of thousand blank book that just says, I hate the internet. People would just want to post pose with it on Instagram, put it on their coffee table. Exactly. So yeah. when you, when you talk about backers, just to make sure I get all the mechanics of sure. the self public, like this successful self publishing venture down, you hired a very good publicist. Yes. You networked well, you know, just to use business parlance. <laughs> um, you know, well, you, no, I, I would say I networked with two people, but you did well. I mean, yeah. door to Norris and Aaron Kotke. Well, well I, but see Aaron, I never even spoke to cause right. Dorothy sent her the email. The only two people that I actually, before this began, that I actually knew in public or writers anyway, that I knew were Dorta and Jonathan Leatham, who I only really knew because I met him in a bathroom at a Philip K. Dick convention. I've heard that story so many times yeah. about people and Jonathan Leatham. Yeah. He just hangs out in the bathroom. Well, <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, so, uh, but you did, you know, whether or not you knew what right. you were doing, it was a fortuitous thing. Yeah. You could have landed in, in worse hands than door to Norris and Aaron Kotke. You yeah, found your yeah. way to a good publicist, but you also had to cover the cost of a publicist, which if you're paying a good publicist on a monthly retainer, it's not cheap, right? It's not cheap. I, I don't want to speak to the dollar amounts because that's Leah's business. Of course. But yeah, it's expensive. Yeah. I mean, it was more expensive than printing the book. And so how did you get backers? Like, what did that look like? So I have friends cause I, I have a tech background sort of. Um, and one of the things that has happened with people that I've known for a really long time is they have ended up with a lot of money and no angel invest and they, um, you know, I, so it's two guys. One is this guy, Josh Mast, who lives in Virginia. And another is this guy, Brandon Crichton, who, uh, now is at the time I think was in Boston. Now I think is in orange County, somewhere South of here. Um, and 
I just asked them, you know, and, and Brandon put up some money, Josh put up the lion's share of it. And I think the interest for him, other than a potential tax write-off, um, the interest for him was seeing what would happen because he had the same, as soon as I told him the title, he was like, well, that'll work. Right. Um, and so he, you know, he gave most of the money and it's really not that complicated to do if you want to do it right, which is you have to form a business entity, which you can get legal zoom to do for you. So it's not that hard or that expensive. Yeah. It's, I think it was like 200 bucks. Right. Um, and then whatever the fees are for setting up a business in California. Um, like what, like an LLC or yeah, a... an LLC. Okay. It's just an LLC. Cause he, and cause you said it was a tax write off for him. Like if he's supporting a t uh, an LLC or donate or investing in it, then, uh, well, it's what, not a charity is my point. No, it's not a charity, okay. but, um, it didn't make money last year. It could have, but it didn't. Right. Um, because all of the money that came in ended up getting reinvested into other books uh and to other things and so you know your books or other books other books that you're publishing on that, the imprint that, yeah that we're publishing on the well so that's the whole thing like when i decided to do this the idea was to make it look as little like self-publishing as possible now the minute the new york times review hit i've just been completely open about it being self-published yeah because it's like take it away now but prior to that, I mean, there's such a stigma. I don't know if, if I knew when we entered, when we, we talked yeah, last time. Yeah, I think time. I probably lied to you. Did you? Yeah, probably. You son of a bitch. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> we, we kept it such a closely held secret. Right. But so the way that, one of the ways by which the press was made to look more legitimate, and I mean, now it is a legitimate press, um, but to make it look less like one guy like what it was which was one guy sitting on a bed with some boxes under the bed um you know you had to get distribution and you had to have other books in the pipeline so i approached people i knew and asked them do you want to do books and uh like the book that came Im out immediately after i hate the internet which did really well because a the person who wrote it has a following and b i think just the energy around i hate the internet attached to it uh was this book by the artist and writer william e jones um who i call the smartest man in california because he kind of is um, and he wrote a biography of this guy, Boyd McDonald, who founded the first queer zine. And it's this, you know, it's like a 200 page book. It's a biography of someone that no one else has ever written about. And, you know, the thing about Jones and where he was really helpful other than doing what I think is a really good book. Um, Jones has won every award you can imagine for an artist. A visual artist. Um, a, a visual artist. I mean, and I think what really helped too is right before the book came out, he, I think right before I Hate the Internet came out, he won a Warhol writing grant. So it was like, that was heavy legitimization. And then I also approached um, the British writer, Ian Sinclair, who is one of my favorite writers about reissuing his first book. And he was a guy who self-published. He had his own press that he ran out of 
his house in Hackney um, in the 70s. And this is a thing he wrote about uh, shooting a documentary with Allen Ginsberg. And um, Sinclair is interesting because he is something of an eminence uh, in British letters, but he still works with the small press because he's that's his origin. So there was a point a couple of years ago where he was doing like, you know, he'd have a hardcover come out on whatever the imprint is uh, from Penguin in the UK that he's on and then do four or five small press books in a year and did that for a couple of years. He had this massive explosion of output. And so he said yes. And that was another person who had won endless awards and Americans are obsessed with awards. Of course. If you you have an award, you've been legitimated. Um, So, you know, it just, it made the press look real. It just made the press look real. Smart. Yeah. Shrewd. Yeah. And so, you know, and there's, there's a model in California of writers who have their own press where they just publish themselves and their friends. I mean, the obvious one is, uh, Ferlinghetti at city lights. Right. Uh, but you know, like semi-text Chris Krauss, I was going to say co-editor there. Um, other, or Dave Eggers is, is a huge example, you know? So it seemed like it was a, a, a legitimate model, but the thing that these people have all done is they've published other people. Right. Like you can't just do and had distribution and had, which is a key point. Well, with Ferlinghetti, I think it was just like he had a box in a store at the well, beginning. Well, but he had a, yeah, but he had his own store. Yeah. So he, he had, had distribution. A, yeah, so he had <laughs> distribution. And so like SCB, um, they are, they're probably the only distributor in the U S where you can get on the phone and talk to the boss without him knowing who you are. How did you know about them? And then you just called them up? Yeah, I just called them up. Who told you about them? Uh, they did, I did a book or two books with the small press called Penny Anti Press, which I, I don't know if it's still around. Um, I think it is. Uh, they were distributed by SCB. So I'm just like, well, that's who I, I mean, I, I had approached other people too and had approached other people with, so now here's the lie to my anti-networking statement, but with recommendations from people who were being distributed by them, by significant people who were being distributed by them. Couldn't get anywhere. SCB called the guy up and then in a week had a deal. Wow. Yeah. That's a big, but that's a big component. It's the, the books have to be accessible. Exactly. Yeah. And they, you know, they're great. They're, they're really friendly. Um, they're bright. They do a really good job. Um, they don't do a huge amount of literary distribution, but they, they seem to be doing more. How so. much, how much, uh, how many books have you published or, or how many books are in the pipeline? Okay. So <laughs> we did, I hate the internet, true homosexual experiences by Bill Jones, um, Kenley Stubrick by Mike Klein and Leonora come down by, uh, my friend Tony. And those books got, unfortunately got hammered because they came out maybe maybe a month or two months before the election and it turns out that like publishing a book or any book prior to america's most apocalyptical election (laughs) is a really good way not to sell books yeah i mean they sold they moved a couple a significant amount of copies but i think if they had 
if it had not been in September of 2016, it wouldn't have been. Timing matters. Yeah. You know, you have to have people talk about people's attention. Yeah. I mean, I, it's funny. I just didn't anticipate and well, no one anticipated it. So, um, they got hammered and then we did, um, Sinclair's book in November and then, um, Then the only thing that we pu- we've published thus far this year is we did because we were also the, the press also does cassettes now, which is what do you mean like like audio cassettes? yeah like audio cassettes drifting ever closer to twee hipster bullshit. <laughs> um, but no, I've I've gotten really interested in audio cassettes. I, see, I have a I have a real nostalgia for audio cassettes because that was what I grew up on. That was what I was listening to in my car until like right around the year 2000 yeah it's been almost 20 years but i mean it doesn't seem that far away from me and what i loved about them uh is that you could do anything to them they were almost indestructible they're portable they're cheap they're indestructible and they're easier to do than vinyl yeah um and so uh we did a cassette with this british writer ifgenia ball who's brilliant um and then fiona's book is coming out uh fiona helmsley's girls gone old from your last podcast yeah right you're dominating the show right now uh and you know fiona's like um she's amazingly interesting because she is really brilliant writer that i for some reason just has been a little overlooked she's like my favorite american writer so it's this amazing privilege to be able to publish her and to do it in this way why is she your favorite she's brilliant man she's she's the best um every essay that she does is you know she covers the the, someone asked me because i I did this thing at usc a couple of days ago and someone asked me what a good book was and i was like thanks for that question yeah um but i i think thinking about it later it's like fiona's a really interesting example of that because the stuff that she's writing about is some of its really exam- previously examined cultural things, you know, like who hasn't written about the East Village, myself included. Right. Um, but she does it from such a crazy perspective and from such a unique insight. She's lived a life. Yeah, she's lived a life. I think like sometimes, you know, especially when it comes to essays or memoir, um, it, it's pretty hard to, you know, I struggle with that because I feel like my life is too boring. Do yeah. you ever have that sense? Maybe you, maybe your life is interesting. My, but like, my life is like listening to music and I reading know. books. <laughs> like, these people who write, like, I mean, I'm, I'm watching and reading, um, I'm watching on the internet, you know, and learning about people and reading some of these books and like, and some people live yeah. very close to the edge yeah. or have just been through so much horrific shit or just, you know, fate has befallen them in yeah. a certain way that makes it for very compelling reading. Right. Well, and Fiona's an interesting example because... She, you know, and I, I don't want to speak out of turn for her, but it's in the work and, and she's open about it. Um, you know, she's had a lot of experiences. She doesn't have a lot of money and she's a hardcore intellectual. And I think one of the reasons why she's been ignored is because America has developed a massive skepticism about the idea of the working class intellectual. Well, see, I just had Scott McClanahan and I, I don't want to speak out of turn either. Yeah. I, I would, I guess he's working class, 
but just because he's from West Virginia, right. yeah. he has a bit of a twang. Yeah, yeah. I think it can be easy for people, especially, you know, the, the coastal elites mm-hmm. or the academic elites right. who have like a fixed like preconception of like what an intellectual exactly. sounds like, looks like, lit where they live, etc. And I was talking to a, a buddy of mine uh, about my conversation with Scott and I was like, I think Scott might be the the most well-read or Scott's brilliant. One of the most well-read writers uh, I've ever interviewed. Yeah. No, Scott, Scott's Uh, the real deal. I saw him do a reading a couple of years ago. Well, God, longer than a couple of years ago in uh, San Francisco. One of the best readings I've ever seen in my life. Yeah. I've heard that. Yeah. You know, I've heard, like, I want to say great writer. One of the things he, like he was, uh, didn't he like beat a radio to death or like stomp a radio <laughs> to pieces at a re- that, that kind of thing? Yeah, yeah. He was he, he was singing at the reading I saw. It, there it you was go. brilliant. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But you know, there's a huge skepticism. Big publishing doesn't publish poor people. You know, it feels like to me when I look at, in particular, people who have proximity to big publishing in mm-hmm. New York, people who live there, who socialize right. with the editors, yeah. go to parties and barbecues, and you know what I'm saying? Like, yeah. it's it's just like Hollywood, you know? It's just like yeah. any business, really. Like, if you know people and you have personal relationships, it makes it a hell of a lot easier to get in the door. Yeah, well, I mean, I did the most idiotic thing in the world, which was I moved from New York to and i didn't know anyone in publishing in new york to la and then decided that i should try to become <laughs> i never lived there a literary yeah uh, and i'm well, a literary podcaster well, so one, one of the things well but see you've done the right thing right which is you've got to make them come to you if you're not in new york that's what you have to do um but no i i mean um one of the things that happened after i hate the internet came out is that um, this writer, Matthew Spector. Yeah, I know Matthew. Yeah. I've, I've talked to him on the show. Yeah, he's great. He, and who he's been enormously supportive. Um, he blurbed the new book. Actually. I saw, yeah. Yeah. And, um, he got me invited to a handful of literary parties, which I didn't even know there was a literary LA. I thought it was like the art world slash semi attacks slash that crowd, which is like what 500 people who've all slept with each other and hate each <laughs> other. Um, and then, you know, like the really big deals, right? Like someone who has a sitcom gets $8 million to write a book about race right. in a humorous <laughs> fashion. Um, but I didn't realize there was a mid tier of like literary writers, never met any of them, never really encountered any of them, you know, they were people. They were what they were. Some of them were really nice. Some of them were not. Um, but the thing that I realized very shortly in that was like to a T, actually with the exception of Spectre, although he lived in New York too, but to, to a T, every single one of them were people who had been in New York and then established themselves in publishing and then came to L.A. Or if they had been from L.A., went to New York established themselves and then when they felt comfortable had come back smart i mean it makes it makes some sense but it's like just feels you know (coughs) there's an inside baseball element and uh there's also a very strong class element that you can't deny well you know these are people like there's so much like i went to this school and i went to this college and so did you or you went to something similar and now you're an editor and like our kids go to you know what i'm saying it's just all that stuff well i mean i think the thing that is um really hard to get around is that publishing 
is in a city that has been taken over completely by global finance. And those people have a lot of money. Yeah. So rent is really high. I mean, rent's high everywhere, but to live in New York and you're, if you're entry level at a publishing firm, you're what you're making $30,000 can't live. It's very rare to, to find people who can you know, come from, can do that without it's mathematically, serious. it's mathematically impossible. You have to have help. Some people are able to do it somehow, mm-hmm. but yeah. they're rare. And so, you know, it's not to really insult anyone who's in publishing, but there's just, you know, there's a narrow, there's a narrow gate to get through. Right. Um, and I think it's just human nature. People publish people, people are, it's the rare person that is attracted to things that are truly beyond their experience. So you end up with, you know, you end up with a lot of upper middle class writers. That's it. Yeah. And just to get back to, I hate the internet and yeah. like the, the narrative surrounding that. And like at, you, at some point we're going to have to talk about the new book. Well, we're gonna, leading to okay, it. We're okay. leading to it. Cause, Cause like, I'll, trust me, I'll get the emails if yeah. we don't. <laughs> Right now, but it's all part of the arc, I feel like. Yeah, no, it is. It is. Um, but, you know, you talked about Grail Marcus. You talked about the Dwight Garner interview. Yeah. Like, what was the, I mean, was Grail the tipping point? Like, what was the tipping point where you felt changes in your life? Um, I can tell you the tipping point where I knew that the book was going to screw everything up and okay. just make everything really weird was um, Hedy L. Colty, who is one of the editors at Semiotext. And who is uh, of French, well, he's French. Well, actually, I think he's from Morocco, but he speaks French. And so he was reading this French magazine, and there was an article about Brett Easton Ellis. Oh, right. um, Because I think his complete works had just been reissued in France, and they'd sent someone, they'd sent a photographer to his apartment, and uh, they shot this photo of him in bed, you know, and it's, it's a hilarious photo because it's, you know, it's Brett Easton Ellis, which is always interesting. He's in bed. There's like pills all over his bed <laughs> and he's reading, I hate the internet. Right. And that, you know, like I'm, God knows I'm getting older, but I not old enough to have grown up with him as a writer. If that makes any sense. By the time that I became aware of him, he was already Brett Easton Ellis. He and so it was. I remember him from like the eighties. I remember being a kid. Yeah, yeah. And like the when I was like a maybe like late elementary school even, and it was like the high school kids who were like freshmen and sophomores in high school, like were like American Psycho. Yeah, yeah. You know? But so I'm a little later than that. Yeah. So like when I first became aware of him, I think Glamorama had just come out. Right. And by that point, that was it. He was like, you know, he was whatever the media phenomenon that is Brett Easton Ellis is. So Hedy was sent me a copy of the photo and it just came into, he like, I think he took a picture of it on his phone and it came into my email and it was like, well, now God is reading your book. <laughs> that That's really what it was like. It was like as if someone had snapped a picture of God because Brett Easton Ellis media phenomenon, not the person is just, he's unreal. It's an unreal thing. Um, and, and it that, wields influence and it wields influence. Well, and I mean, it's put it right up on the website. Um, but yeah, I mean, that was a moment where it was like, 
okay, this is not going to be what you thought it was. This is going to be something else. And then the New York Times review, which came about a month after that, was when it all just started to go into serious overdrive. And so what does serious overdrive mean? That means uh, foreign rights? Foreign rights. Um, the next, the book that we at some point have to talk about, yeah. um, that got sold. Um, right after the New York Times review? The book, my my agent, <clears throat> who I didn't have, this, this guy, William Callahan, who's at Inkwell and who is a long suffering individual if not, and is a really good agent. Um, he sent it out that day. He sent the new, the manuscript out, which you, cause you had already written this book. Yeah. Yeah. Right. I mean, yeah, like, well, so tell the, the story about sure, it. Sure. Well, I mean, and this, this is a, this isn't a good segue. So the book is the future won't be long. It's a book about some of the characters from, I hate the internet in New York in the eighties and the nineties set against primarily the backdrop of the much trafficked terrain of the East village and also the club kids scene. And I wrote this in like 2011 to 2012. And I was like, this is a good book. This is a good book. Couldn't get anyone to take it seriously. Had some, I, I will say some agents looked at it and um, were encouraging in their comments, but you know, it, being an agent is the weirdest job in the world because <clears throat> these are people who primarily will read something, say they like it, and then send you an email being like, well, I'm not doing it. It's too hard. <laughs> and you know, it's like, if you did that in any other job, you just get fired. If you were like, well, my job's too hard, so I'm not going to do this work. Um, <laughs> I got to try that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It works for them. It's yeah. the bedrock of the industry is, uh, someone being like, eh, eh, it's too hard. Um, so, you know, I put it aside and then maybe a year later I had been, I was thinking about, I had, cause you know, like I was in San Francisco, that was a catastrophe. And, I was thinking about writing a book about the internet and writing a book about San Francisco. And then I realized that I could reuse primarily Adeline, who's the main character and I hate the internet. Um, and who's one of the two protagonists in the future won't be long. I was like, well, that would be really interesting because you know, this is someone who in the eighties and the nineties was for lack of a better word, a cool girl and like sort of gen X thing. And, um, wouldn't that be interesting to see this person then get caught up in the hell of the internet? And what would that be like? And, you know, there's something about fictional characters when they exist across multiple books. They get, that's they, what Brett Easton Ellis does that. Yeah. They get weight. They get a kind of weight that they wouldn't have otherwise. And so I wrote, I hate the internet, you know, thinking, well, this other book, maybe it'll get published, but probably not because by the time I hate the internet came out, it was like five years old, something the oldest writing in it was about five years old. Um, and 
But I, you know, when I hate the internet started to come out, I was like, well, let me look at this and see if I can revise it. And I made one structural change to the previous manuscript. I made one structural change, which I think helped a lot. Um, and then, uh, and the structural change was that on the advice of your agent? No, no, this was before I even had an oh, agent. Oh, okay, okay. So, so you 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 found the the problem? Yeah. Uh, well, it's a huge book. It's like a hundred and forty five thousand words long, and in my madness of or my innocence uh, of 2011, 2012, uh, the book takes place across 11 years, 1986 to 1996. And so there were only 11 chapters, one for each year, and each chapter was about 10 to 15,000 words long. That's asking a lot of anyone. Um, so now there's probably like 100 chapters in the book. I just broke it up into incidents. Um, so... I hate the internet came out. I got a offer from Serpent's Tale in the UK to do a UK edition of I hate the internet. And I realized that I had reached a point where I no longer could do it by myself because foreign rights contracts. I mean, yeah. some of them are really simple. Some of them are really long. Right. And it's just, it's something I knew nothing about. So, um, Actually, speaking of Matthew Spector, by that point, I had met Spector. Here's the networking. Yeah, yeah. I had met Spector because Lethem had done a small review of I Hate the Internet, which we then stuck on the back of the book. Um, and that was an astonishing kindness. Um, and he had sent the book on to Spector. And then when I was doing an event at... Um, Skylight, I asked Spectre if he would do it with me, and he did, and it was a very pleasant event. And then when um, when I needed an agent, I asked him because, you know, his father was like the god of talent agents. Yeah, yeah. And I was like, well, this is probably the person it's to ask. a good ask. person to ask, right. And then um, through this writer, Ivy Pachata, he got me in touch with william callahan and you know so then callahan and i talked and he was like yeah yeah we should do it we should do it that's fine we'll 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 represent you i'll represent you and then this was before we even knew the new york times review was coming so you know his love is true <laughs> well what's true about william callahan no no that's not yeah no i mean he's enormously supportive um and so when we found out the review was coming, the assumption was it had to be a good review because why would the New York Times find something so small to just be like, this is shit? Right. And I, I mean, if they did that in a way, it probably would have had not quite the same effect, but there is a way you could have played that to make the book do really well too off of that. So the assumption was it was a good review. Um, so he just was like, the day that thing comes out, we're, we're sending out the manuscript. And so he did. Smart business. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I mean, it doesn't make you, I mean, I guess that's just the way the world works, you know, and uh, publishing is a business and the people who make these decisions about what to publish, they have to make money to keep yeah. their jobs and whatnot. And so 
you know, the, nobody wanted to touch it five years ago, but then you build this thing, you build, yeah. I hate the internet and you, there it starts to, you know, find legs and find success. And then suddenly everybody's interested in your new book or your old book. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, it, it gives you a very peculiar, um, understanding of value because one day this file is just something decaying on your hard drive and the next day it's fairly valuable and nothing has changed in terms of the thing itself. Right. You know, nothing has changed. Hmm. Um, yeah. So Viking ended up with the book and Alison Lawrence who's brilliant is the editor and she's from Massachusetts. One of the things that, um, I didn't know cause I'm so used to like the degradation of the small press <laughs> is when presses, um, make an offer for your book, the editors will write emails saying why they want to publish it. And they're all very sweet and they're all very nice and complimentary. And Allison wrote a really wonderful thing. But, um, later she told me, that she was from Massachusetts. And I was like, well, you should have just said that. That could have been the whole thing. <laughs> I'm from Massachusetts because <laughs> I'm originally from Rhode Island. So, you know, that's your turf. Yeah. Matt mass, mass people. I understand. So, well, so, and, and, uh, I would imagine as well that a part of evaluate, cause did you have multiple offers to consider multiple ha emails? A handful. So, okay. Handful. So you, but you're weighing offers, right? And you're reading these emails. Yeah. And I've talked to authors who've been through uh, that process before, and they usually describe when they make their selection that some of it is based on the editor's understanding of the work. Mm -hmm. You know, they say something or they say many somethings that demonstrates like, oh, they really get mm -hmm. it. They get it in the way that you want somebody to right. get it. They're like your reader. Is that the case? Or, or maybe they say something that illuminates it in a way you hadn't expected. I can't remember. Yeah. I, 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 and that's not to disrespect anyone. It just was in such an insane moment. Um, but whatever was said was obviously it worked the, the, the right thing to say. The right combination it, of emojis. It, yeah, <laughs> exactly. The, um, the ice cream emoji. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, but no, I mean, she, it was clear that Allison understood the work. Did you have a sense of, uh, well, I want to be with Viking. Like, I like that press. I like the books they do. Uh, well, they published John le Carre, which I thought was interesting because he's, I find him endlessly fascinating. But no, I mean, I don't, I don't really know that much about publishing. I mean, I know about the act of publishing. I know how to have a publisher, but I don't know. I don't really know that much about, but you have good instincts. You have good instincts, dude. You have to accept <laughs> you that. Got instincts. You got good instincts. You got good instincts. Because you're doing things. You're doing. You're making very good choices and very smart choices um, along the way. And you're. And I think too, like you got to uh, concede, or I would hope you would concede that luck plays an element. Like, oh, of course. You know, Dorda. Like, you know, like just knowing the right people and the just happenstance. Well, the only reason I know Dorda is that I did the only residency I've ever done was this residency in Denmark. Right. I and talked. I think I talked to both of you. I want, I want to say you mentioned it last time and then I talked to her about it. Yeah. Um, and I mean like that was like the weird, here's luck. I, I saw someone mention somewhere that this thing was happening. I think it was like the last day for app, the application. And I, I filled it out when I was drunk. Uh, like I just come back from a bar and I filled it out when I was drunk 
and then forgot that I had sent it in. So when I got the email saying that they uh, had, accepted, had accepted me, I thought it was spam because I had no idea what the <laughs> hell it was. Um, who, am, it, who among us has not applied, applied for a residency yeah. in a blackout? I mean, come on. I don't know if it was a blackout. <laughs> it, was, it was close, though. Um, so, you know, I, it ended up being the most consequential decision, really, that I've ever made towards writing. And it was like a complete whim. It's funny because, and this was, I'm assuming you met Dorda at this thing and yeah, this yeah. was before she really took off. This was like uh, two months before the New Yorker published her first short story. And mm -hmm. it, and like, she didn't even know what the New Yorker was. I mean, she knew what the New Yorker was, but she didn't under, I don't think she had a, a grasp of the consequences, the impact that would have on her life. She didn't think they were going to pay her. Uh, this, this other writer, Mariko Nagai. And I were like, no, they're going to give you money. <laughs> and she was stunned. Yeah. So, well, I mean, that's, uh, that, what's the word for that? That's sweet. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, I, one of the nicest people I've ever met. I love talking life. with her. Yeah. She was just off a plane. You yeah. know, when I talked to her, she could not have been better on the yeah. show. I mean, despite being like jet lagged and yeah. having been all, I, I think place. I did an event with her the night after. Yeah. 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 She yeah. was great. And, uh, I loved her book too. What was the, what was the name of the one that gray wolf put out? Uh, they, I, they did two. They did um, Karate Chop, which was short stories. I got to read that. That's I, good. I know. That's I've been really meaning to, good. but it was the other one. It was the winter. Oh. Uh, so much for that winter. Right. But I can't. Yeah. But it was like two, two books. It's two novellas. Right. Yeah. Loved it. Loved yeah. It. She's, she's fascinating because generally speaking, I don't think anyone deserves anything. But oh my God, she deserves all the success yeah. that she has had. She's one of those people where you're like, okay, this is a really good person. Yeah. Like purely good. Yeah. Or, she, you know, not purely good, meaning there's no, I'm sure darkness. there's some evil in her <laughs> somewhere, but no, she's, she's brilliant. She's an absolutely brilliant writer and has been kinder to me than probably anyone, mm. you know, that's great. Yeah. And so, you know, we had met, I want to say we met for a drink here in town. Um, I don't know, six months ago. Yeah. Something like that. And I remember we were kind of talking, I was catching up with you and we were talking about what has a lot of what we just discussed. Like we were catching up on how everything was going with your book. Yeah. And I think you told me that, um, you know, Viking had picked up the new one, yeah, yeah. but you had also been like, my God, like this has just dismantled my life. Like it's, you know, like you have, like it had a big impact. Like it was yeah. a big change for you to deal with. And suddenly you were doing interviews and there yeah. was a lot of more media attention. Yeah, yeah, and then yeah. there's all this business stuff to tend to. Um, has, has it been stressful? The first six months were just like a state of constant anxiety. And then I kind of burned out. Anxiety about what? I think we, when we, when we talk about chaos, we, even just something in the sound of the word is ominous, right? So chaos is the person struck down by a disease, the person hit by a car, the person who has some misfortune befall them. Um, but it turns out there can be good chaos too. Uh, the thing about it is if you're having a realistic assessment of it when it's happening, it feels very similar to the bad chaos because your life, like no one, no one self publishes a book. Well, no one who's not a, a psychopath 
self-publishes a book and thinks, well, a year later it will be in translated or be about to be translated into seven languages, or I'll have to go to Germany and become a spectacle at the Frankfurt book fair. <laughs> um, and that's, that's a, that's a tricky thing. That's a really tricky thing to deal with. How did you, you, so your German publisher wanted you, like which publisher wanted uh, yeah, you to go to Frankfurt? Uh, Fisher Verlag, um, who did the German edition had me come over to Frankfurt and for about <clears throat> an hour, they transformed their booth into an orgy of, I hate the internet, like every single, so they have a huge booth cause they're a huge publisher. They took down everyone else's books and it was just this thousand square foot. How do you say I hate the internet in German? I can't do it. Oh, you can't. I, okay. I can't. It sounds um, like a fun thing to do. I must be. It must be. <laughs> it's like something you want to shout or something. But like they had t-shirts, they had like 3,500 tote bags, they had branded beer. They, it, it was something. Wow. It was, it was really weird. Where, it, where is that book selling the most? Do I, don't, I don't know. Cause I still, cause it's still so new, um, in terms of the foreign editions, like, like they're just rolling out or, or, you know, like you don't get a royalty statement until the end of the year. Right. So I don't really know. I know it weirdly enough. I know it's done very well in Serbia. There's a Serbian edition. Um, and I was, I went to Serbia and did an event. Um, and that was weird as, I mean, they, it was weird because one Serbians, I think kind of because Serbia has been a pariah nation. Um, and also cause it has that Eastern Bloc influence. Um, they haven't been fully consumed with neoliberal pessimism. And so as a result, they think books can change the world, which who in the West really believes that, you know, we say we believe it, but then I don't know, we pass out in a haze of junk food and Twitter. I was going to say Twitter is what can change the world. Yeah. Dude, not books. Yeah. Well, I've been yelled at about that. So, um, the, the, and then the second thing is I don't think a lot of American writers go there in a professional capacity. Um, so I thought it was going to be like, well, you'll be talking to 10 people in a room in Belgrade. And it was like a, it was a madness. I ended up on, state television twice did state radio all of it was really insane wow yeah so it's done well there but i mean in terms of how many copies it's sold i don't know how many there but it, it was on the bestseller lists when, when i was there in, in serbia in serbia yeah i'm huge in serbia yes <laughs> no i mean it actually one of the things that i thought about which i'm still thinking about is like maybe the entire model of doing book events is broken, right? The way that you do them in the U S is you go to LA, you go to New York, you go to San Francisco, maybe you go to St. Paul, maybe you go to Chicago. Um, but the thing is every one of those cities, every single night has at least one other book event. Like there's nothing about that, which is unique. And so just through the familiarity of it, I don't think it has the same impact with people. Maybe the model is to go on like a, a road show in places where there's never book events. Right. And then maybe that can be a connection with readers. 
maybe that can make the events connect with readers in some really profound way. Cause like, you know, and this sounds arrogant and it's not spoken in arrogance. My impression is that like I could now be published in Serbia forever just by virtue of having gone and done that because so few American writers or any, I mean, uh, maybe I'm wrong, but do do they get even European writers? Do they get outside? I don't think think they get a lot of, I I don't know about the European writers. They must get some, they must get more. Sure. But I mean, you know, it still sort of has not the best reputation justifiably. Um, So I think, you know, I don't know. I think there's, I think there's a model there. Yeah. I I mean, this is going to sound, I don't know if this is the right line to draw, but uh, you know who Timothy Ferris is like the, I, he's like he's like the priest of Silicon Valley. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. You know yeah, he's yeah. like all about like uh, self mastery and like yeah. you know two percent body fat right. and like yes. remember yes. everything and yes. But he was talking Sounds about like a wonderful life. <laughs> <laughs> he was talking about uh, going on like renting a camper and kind of doing what you were talking about, like driving to towns. But like the thing is, is that he's got this huge internet following, right. so he was going to like see where the demand was first and then be like, I'll come to your town and do a reading, yeah. but I got to know that a hundred people will be there. Right. Um, and so I guess like if we're talking about like uh, a writer like you or any of our listeners or whatever, trying to do something along those lines, it's like you would, almost, I'm imagining it that you would almost have to like show up in the town and then like during the day, like hand out flyers, be like tonight's, tonight's the event. <laughs> it's like come the, to the town square. You know? That's, um, <laughs> delightfully lo-fi yeah that's like pt barnum yeah exactly it's like the music man yeah exactly you know but that could be kind of fun yeah and and i'm still thinking about it it'd be fun to document it too yeah you know as an event and maybe make like a documentary about it right like i mean in the world we live in it's like if you make that kind of stuff and put it up online maybe that brings more eyeballs too makes people like feel like they're part of it even if you did it as like a diary type thing right so people could see what you were up to and anticipate your arrival yeah in their town yeah well i'm still (laughs) thinking about it so i'm I'm not sure what i'm going to do but it it really was an interesting moment of feeling like you doing an event that clearly was having some kind of impact beyond the normal events i you know i I think not to harp on this too much, but I think it's a really good idea and be good for, uh, American culture Mm -hmm. for maybe a group of writers Mm. to do a road show. Right. But taking literature to places that don't normally get and and authors to places that don't normally get exposed to it. Yeah. I, I mean, I think didn't, um, actually speaking of Elizabeth Ellen, didn't she and Scott McClanahan and some other writers do that a they did of years i mean they, they were in the midwest like yeah. you know going from t- i mean they did maybe some towns that would would fall under the radar but they were like you know it was like ann arbor i want to say oh, like yeah. cincinnati indianapolis right but not like small towns yeah yeah not you know going. well in trump's america maybe you can yeah. get killed <laughs> yeah. doing it. um and you know i do want to talk to you about that because sure. i i value your opinion um Oh, it's bleak. I know, but I'm on matters cultural and political. I feel like you're somebody who pays attention to this stuff. I imagine that the last, you know, six plus months have been, uh, as, uh, unnerving, uh, for you as they have for me. I mean, where, where, what, where, what is your take today? Like, how are you feeling? Where do you see things going? I, I think we're doomed. Honestly, I think I had this impression after Trump won and it was clear that 
he was going to continue with the approach that both Bush and Obama had taken, which was essentially ruling by executive fiat, executive orders, executive orders, executive orders. And it's like, that's not what the presidency was designed to do, right? The presidency supposed to have some executive control, but really it's supposed to be the Congress that is the body which determines the forward course of the country. And the president has some relationship to that. But, you know, like if you think, I mean, I think this is what happens to institutions, right? Where as time goes on, they, they retain the outward appearance of, of the, of their original intent, but they just drift. And so you have a presidency that's essentially making law. You have an executive of, uh, sorry, a legislative body that can't make law. And you have a Supreme court that for a variety of reasons is way more powerful than it was ever intended to be. That's like the Republic has fallen, right? Like that is not great for, for anyone. Um, and I still think that's true. I, I think we're, you know, will these institutions ever go away? No, but Rome had a Senate until, until it's collapse, um, didn't do anything, but they were still there. And it's like, you know, we are shifting into a very dark moment of American life. And I don't know if there is a recovery from it. There's I, a lot of damage being done. Yeah. I mean, well, the thing, the thing is, and I don't want to get into it that much because I had a conversation with someone about this and I ended up getting yelled at. And I don't think you're going to yell at me, (laughs) but it's like the profound fixation on the wrong things relative to Trump coming from people who I think would identify from being on the left, but actually I would say are kind of on the right anyway, Uh, because there is no left wing in America. There's just two right-wing parties and one's significantly less repellent than another. Um, But like the fixation on Twitter, on emails, on meetings, on supposed collusion with the Russians, which I, you know, like don't really see it. I mean, I see idiots. I see really stupid people doing really stupid things, but not really that much evidence. I mean, a guy took a meeting is not evidence. I think we're going to find out more. Yeah, we will find out more. And it could turn out, I could be completely wrong, but thus far, not especially convincing. The problem with all of this is it's like this fixation on the superficial aspects of it are a way by which we're not having the conversation that should be happening, which is what does this do what is happening right now that's really terrible for the country? And what does it do in the long term? Because in the long term, it's like, say Trump got impeached tomorrow. Say he was out of office. Say he died. Say any of these things happen. It's not going to be good. It's like tomorrow wouldn't be any better. It would be less annoying. It would be less embarrassing. But Mike Pence is terrifying. And, you know, whoever is president realistically speaking, it's going to have 
it's going to be a Republican and they're going to have a, at least one more Supreme Court nomination. We're not getting through four years with, or three and a half years. We need, we need him to hang on. Yeah, <laughs> I know we need, but I mean, supposedly Kennedy is going to retire. And that's Ruth, the, that's Ruth the theory. Ginsburg is almost, I can't, I don't even know how She's, old. I want to say like pushing like 85 years so, old. Yeah. I mean, the, this is not, you know, this is not, um, it's not a good picture. It's just not a good picture. And then, you know, the hope is the election in 2018, but I, I think the Republicans probably will just end up winning that. See, I'm, 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 I'm of the belief that we're going to find out that there was real collusion, that he is owned by these people. And I, I mean it like yeah. he, they, he's in hock to them. Could be. That's their leverage. Could be. It makes a lot of sense to me. He could be. I, I I tend to think that I, t I tend to think that if it did happen, it probably wouldn't be so easy to find. Like it wouldn't be like, Oh, here's an email, you know, or here is a meeting. Like I just, I just don't see it. What I see them as is monumentally stupid and monumentally incompetent and you know, they're New York real estate people. They're complete. Th this is, this is like, um, what was the guy who is from, uh, what was it? That HBO documentary jinx, the jinx. Do you remember? Um, oh, right. The, the murder mystery yeah, or whatever. This is what, this is, that's the milieu that Trump emerges from, you know, like you can kill multiple women and your family will st still keep you employed. I tend, I, you know, and I, like I said, I was yelled at about this recently, but I tend to think it's more like really grotesque incompetence and really grotesque stupidity. But I think it's also dark. Like oh, I think it's incredibly dark. Yeah. Like, yeah. like it's also sadism. Yeah. You know, it's not just like bumbling, goofy stupidity. No, no, it's like, no. it's like, I, I feel like there is a darkness at the heart of him. And that when the truth is finally told, if it is ever finally mm -hmm. told in full, right. I, I am increasingly of the belief that it is going to shock a lot of people. Oh, I think that's true. I, th I mean, I think it's, I mean, I think he's the really, there's something else there. I don't even know how to describe it, but I agree with that completely. He's and, and, and what if like, this is the question that goes through my mind is that what if it is discovered that there was collusion, that there was an attempt to uh, hack the election, mm -hmm. to fuck with people's Facebook feeds. I mean, all of this actually has right. been confirmed. Oh, by that's, right. Well, that's, but I mean, I agree. I think that happened. So if there's yeah, an orchestra, yeah. but if it was orchestrated with right. the campaign, that means that he didn't really win. He, he cheated and quote unquote won the election. And so like, if that is found to be true, how does our system respond to that? That means that his, uh, that his, everything that came after election day right. is illegitimate. But I mean, they go on, it all goes on. You know, the, the, I mean, this, the system, I think the reality is that one of the problems with having an almost what 250 year old system of government is when it was created in its infancy, uh, it, the people creating it cannot imagine the complexity that eventually emerges and, yeah. and, and so it's a, it's a system that doesn't exactly work right anymore. And the and, polarization, you talked about Congress, like yeah. there's like, there's such entrenched polarization 
and complete unwillingness to work across the aisle, work with one another that like, like you talk about executive fiat, it's the only way to get anything done unless you have unitary power. Right. But even now we're seeing unitary power (laughs) and they still can't get anything done. It's, um, yeah, it's insane. It's insane. It's completely insane. Uh, I think I've started to think that the moment, well, I think there are two moments that will become really definitive in whenever the history of this, if there is still history being written 50 or 60 years from now, it's probably the Clinton impeachment is going to be seen as the real moment where the country just broke. Um, and then nine 11 sort of pushed it over the edge. Uh, but I think thinking about that in retrospect, it's just like, that's the moment where the I mean, there had already been polarization, but that's the moment where in a two party system, one party abdicated from any Newt Gingrich, exactly abdicated from any kind of interest in governance. And it just became about, you know, the acquisition of money and power. And I mean, it's always been about the acquisition of money and power. I'm not naive, but there's something about that moment where it's like people willing to break the system. Right. Um, and then from there, you can just see it spilling out. Well, and I've talked about this with people on the show probably, but also frequently in conversation where, you know, the dysfunction in our government comes up, which is for me, it's like daily. Right. <laughs> but you, I think back to when Ronald Reagan, who is a far cry, you know, like he's a far cry from where we are now. Right. Uh, I take him in a heartbeat over what we have now, you know, which is, yeah, you know, uh, even though I, I am pretty far away from him politically, but I remember there's the famous quote where it's like, you know, uh, what is it? Government is not the answer. Government is the problem. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm paraphrasing badly, right. but he I ba- think that's exactly it. Yeah. But yeah. he basically, like, he's basically demonized government in a campaign speech and it became a rallying cry for that party. And it just, it became their identity that government is always bad under any circumstances. Right. And so now we're seeing the fruit of that, you know, 40 years later, where when you have unitary power, you can't govern because government is always bad. So you wind up being shitty at governing. Yeah. Like, you yeah. know what I'm saying? Like it demonized any kind of cohesive yeah. um, civic norms. It, like, like all of that stuff is considered to be a problem in their ideology and you wonder much. why things aren't working. Yeah. I mean, I, I agree completely. Well, I'm glad that you could um, shine a little light of optimism here at the tail end, <laughs> make everybody feel good about the future. <laughs> yeah. Well, I heard it won't be long. Well, yeah. so. <laughs> it's a perfect way to end. Jared, it's great uh, to see you again. Yeah. Thanks Congratulations for me. on all the success. It's been, uh, it's nice to have spoken to you like right as uh, I Hate the Internet was, was going out and to now get to talk to you again uh, all these many months later when so much good stuff has happened uh, for your writing career and for your work. Thank you. And, you know, you, your show was the very first thing that I did uh, for I Hate the Internet. And I think it helped an enormous amount. Actually, I think it really ended up setting the tone for a lot of what would then come after. Well, I'm, uh, I'm happy to have done it. Yeah, it was a pleasure. All right, folks, there you go. That is Jarrett Kobeck. His new novel is called The Future Won't Be Long, available from Viking as of August 15th, 2017. You can also read I Hate the Internet out from We Heard You Like Books. Jarrett doesn't have much of an internet presence, though I guess, uh, what, he's got a Facebook page? He's on Twitter, but he hasn't tweeted since 2010. 
And uh, you can get to him. We heard you like books.com. There's a website there. You can track some stuff, da- uh, some stuff down. There's also a Twitter feed. Said we all hate the internet. I forget what it is, but it's like a bot Twitter feed that just retweets people who say I hate the internet. That's one of my favorite Twitter feeds on Twitter. So there is a Jarrett Kobeck presence on the internet is what I'm trying to say, but I don't know how much he even tends to it. The future won't be long available from Viking. Thanks to Kill Rockstars for the music. As always, be sure to check out killrockstars.com. Don't forget about uh, the app for this podcast, The Other People with Brad List. The app, it's free. Get it wherever you get your apps. Get it on your device. Best way to listen. Easiest way to access the program on a weekly basis. Don't forget about the uh, Other PPL pod, uh, patreon.com slash other PPL pod if you want to throw a couple of bucks in the hat. Twitter feed for this show is at OtherPPL. The website is OtherPPL.com. Always fun talking to Jared Kobach. I, uh, I'm very warm right now. <laughs> it's a summer day in Los Angeles. It, it happens to be particularly hot. And uh, Jared and I were talking as he was leaving about the fact that Despite the fact that I now have a much nicer garage than the old version, it remains sweltering. There's no escape. Can't have the air on, can't have a fan on when you're recording. And so, uh, you just cook. That's the way it goes. So I'm now, uh, I'm I'm, uh, managing both my kids. My mom's helping me out. My wife is gone. She's really the glue that holds everything together feel a sense of pressure going into this week. My son has not been sleeping well. That means I could be up all night. And I, I'm trying not to think about it. And I got to go into work. No sleep. Function. Talk to people. Be accountable. I can do this. It's going to be fine. Everything's perfect. <laughs> <laughs>